Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my seats fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. It is now time for you to get the answers to your questions. It's time to welcome onto the show the Naked Scientist himself, Dr. Dave. Good evening, Dr. Good Dave. Good evening, Sue. What's all new in the world of science? Well, quite a nice thing I saw this week was that... You remember Richard Noble, who broke the world land speed record a few years back, probably in the end of the 80s. Oh, yeah. And then they built a supersonic version thrust SSC, which broke the sand barrier on the ground. Yep. Now he's going for something even more ridiculous. He's going for, to try and get a car to do over a 1,000 miles an hour. That's dangerous. On the car. It is really quite scary, in fact. Um, the way he's wanting to do this, in fact, it was a thought of by a guy called Lord Drayson, who's in the government. And he's um, really worried there's a lack of scientists and engineers coming up through school. So he wants some interesting projects to get people in, excited about science and engineering. So he's talked Richard Noble into trying to build this car Someone's lending them a Eurofighter engine, so a jet, basically a jet fighter engine. Lending them. Lending them. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one which they can't use in a, proper, in a proper fighter jet because it's run for too long. It's, it's fairly worn out, so it hasn't got enough hours left to run. Okay. So they're, they're sort of lending them that, and they're putting a rocket on top of that as well. Right. So they've got a car which weighs about six and a half tonnes, and they've got about ten tonnes of thrust on the back. So if it wanted to, it could fly straight upwards. So, yeah, they're basically trying to put a huge amount of power on this car and then trying to make it do a 1,000 miles an hour on the ground. Um, this causes all sorts of problems. Things like the wheels will be going around so fast. If you put a normal wheel on it, essentially the centrifugal force would blow the wheel apart. It yeah, wouldn't sure. be able to do it. So they have to use special titanium wheels. Um, they had found a problem with the last the supersonic thrust car, which they built a few years back. Because it's going faster than the speed of sound, you get basically what that means is the air doesn't have time to get around it. So it all piles up in front of you and builds up what's called a shockwave. And what they discovered was this shockwave in front of the car tended to bounce into the ground and they get what they call spray drag because this shockwave would hit the ground and throw up sand. Mm. And so you get all this sand being thrown up, which takes lots and lots of energy and does very bad things to your car. So they're doing all sorts of really high-tech um, aerodynamics to try and minimise this and basically keep the thing on the floor. It's got, enough, it's got enough thrust to be able to make it fly straight upwards like a Harrier jump jet. Mm. So the difficult thing is keeping it on the ground. So there's all sorts of really high-tech aerodynamic bits at the front which can adjust it and try and keep it exactly on the ground without flying upwards, because if it flies upwards, then he's in trouble. Mad world of silence. Now, Dr Dave, Mark in Colchester is asking, how accurate is his sat-nav as there is around a two to three mile per hour difference between the speed it calculates and the speed my car says it's going? Which should he believe? 
Well, the way your car is measuring the speed is going to be quite different to the way the sat-nav works. The car will measure the speed. In fact, the old-fashioned cars work by just having a, a thing attached to the wheel or an axle somewhere attached to the wheels, which would spin round, and that spun a little aluminium disc in behind the speedo. And then you have a little magnet near the aluminium disc. If you've got a moving piece of aluminium near a magnet, it tends to drag the magnet with it because you induce electric current in the aluminium, which creates a little magnet which pulls the magnet around with it. And so that moves the the, um, needle across. It's called eddy currents, which are producing these magnets. Uh, More modern ones, you have a little sensor which detects how often the um, wheels are going round. Then from that, if you know how big the wheels are, you can work out how fast you're going. All of these things can have slight errors in them. Um, The way your sat-nav is working out how fast you're going is by looking at where you were say 10 seconds ago and Mm. where you are now measuring the difference in distance and then dividing it by the time it took you to get there and then that will obviously give you your speed your sat nav depends how long it's measuring it over and for a very short period of time there is an error in the sat nav and you get sort of atmospheric conditions and used to i think less now the american government can scramble it a bit so it's not it's not always that accurate so you could get strange jumps in the speed but I would have thought that definitely over any period of time, it's going to be far more accurate because it has to be very accurate because it's it knows where you are at the beginning to within a couple of few metres. It knows where you are 10 minutes later within a few metres. So the difference of those is going to be quite accurate. And the time it takes is very accurate because they've got the most accurate clocks on the planet on the sat-nav satellites really? because they're trying to measure your position. And the way they're measuring your position is by the difference in time it takes for a signal to get from two different satellites. And because the speed of light is about 300,000 kilometres every second, it's going so incredibly fast, you've got to be able to measure time incredibly accurately to be able to get an accurate position. Mm. So I would say definitely for anything more than a very short period of time, on average, certainly your sat-nav will be right. Right, OK, that's uh, that sorted me out with sat-navs. Um... Tommy has asked uh, Dr. Dave if a featherless chicken fills the cold. I think the only answer would be that, I mean, feathers are really, really good insulation. I mean, you use them in duvets. And when they're actually on a bird, they're probably even better insulation because they're all lying in the right way to trap the air in if the bird's cold. And so a chicken without any feathers is going to be much less well insulated. So if it's cold, I'm pretty sure it would feel the cold, yes. I wonder what a shivering chicken says. <laughs> Andrew has called in and says, Dr. Dave, what is a fast breeder reactor? Okay, it's a type of nuclear reactor. Normal nuclear reactors, which we're using at the moment, they burn uranium-235. Now, u- uranium is an element. There are different types of uranium with different, um, they're called different isotopes. They've got different masses. Two common ones, uranium-235 and uranium-238. Uranium-235 is a little bit less sta- is a bit less stable than u- uranium-238. If you hit it with a neutron, which is going slowly, neutrons are a particle inside an atom, you can split into the two halves. They've got lots of positive charge. They fly apart, releasing a huge amount of energy. The thing is, only about 5% of uranium is uranium-235. So there's a huge... Uranium-238 actually has still got a lot of energy in it. The problem is you can't get it out in a normal nuclear reactor like that. So what you can do is fire high, very fast neutrons at it, and sometimes it can absorb a neutron, and it turns into plutonium, which can then split in half and fission and, and release lots of energy. So basically, a fast breeder reactor is a way of getting far, far, far more energy out of a lump of uranium. 
Um, the big reason why they haven't been taken up in large quantities is because the other thing, the other problem with plutonium is it's quite much easier to make a nuclear bomb out of it than it is to make it out of uranium. So if there's lots of people with fast breeder reactors going about, there could be a lot of plutonium around the place. And it'd be much easier for people to make nuclear bombs, which we don't necessarily want to encourage. So I think Japan's been looking into it a lot because they don't have any coal, they don't have any natural resources. So they want to be able to extract every last piece of energy out of their, out of the, any resources they have had to buy in from other countries. And they also tend to think very long term, so they want to build fast speed reactors because then they're not last longer. You can also burn all, burn lots of nasty nuclear waste in them. Some of the more unpleasant elements you make in a nuclear reactor, you can burn in a fast breeder reactor. And it's the only real way of getting rid of plutonium stockpiles, which um, places like the US and Russia have built up to make nuclear bombs out of. So they have their issues, but yeah, basically it's a different type of nuclear reactor. Dr. Dave, thank you. And here live on the telephone is the lovely Roger. Hello, Roger. Hello there. Hello. What's your question for Dr. Dave? Well, it's, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a poser for me, a real teaser. Right. Um, about two years ago, I, I've got in my lounge, I've got four wall lights. Uh-huh. And I changed them about two years ago to, to the energy saving bulbs. Yep. After about a couple of days, one blew. Well, I didn't bother changing it. I just kept the other three going. Mm. Switched the lights off in the evening. The next day when I switched them on, it came on. And this has been doing that about three times a week for the last two years. What could be causing that? Energy-saving light bulb is... It's a a 9-watt energy-saving bulb. It's got a short spiral, and it gives a very, very bright white light. Yeah. Um, They work on the same technology as the fluorescent tubes, the ones you often see in um, industrial buildings or in schools or quite often in kitchens. They work by... Basically, you're putting an electric current through a low-pressure gas. It's actually low-pressure gas of mercury. Um, This gives the mercury energy atoms lots of energy, and they release that in the form of ultraviolet light, which is the stuff which makes your clothes glow in a disco or a club. On the inside of the tube, they put things called phosphors, which convert that ultraviolet light into visible light, um, which we can see. And they put different phosphors in, so there's red, blue and green and some yellow. And so um, when you you see things in full, in full colour... Now, if you have um, normal fluorescent tubes, the thing is starting them, you need a very high voltage. They have a starting circuit, um, which heats up things at the end, applies a high voltage. Then once you've got an electric current flowing through the gas, its resistance drops a lot, and then you can just apply normal mains to it. So uh, what I would have thought is on your energy-saving light bulb, there's something wrong with this starting circuit. So it sort of just about works sometimes. So it will just about turn on. But it, it doesn't. Uh, it, it keep. It doesn't blow while it's on. Yeah. It's when I switch it on next time, it suddenly goes pop, oh, and then it pop. stays off until I, I switch it. Switch it all off. Yeah. And then next day I switch it on, it comes on again. Yeah, I could believe that because actually one of the ways that you can uh, that you make high voltages is by as the way the old-fashioned sparks were generated in a car. Um, you apply a large current through a coil, and then you suddenly stop that current flowing through that coil. The electricity wants to carry on going, so 
will sort of pile in and that produces a high voltage which then can produce a spark yeah. so probably when you're if you turn on or turn off something you could probably produce higher voltages in the starter which isn't really good enough to work but with that kind of transition there's probably some coils in there you can yeah. generate enough voltage to start it oh, but, with continuous, with, but with continuous mains it probably doesn't there isn't enough there to give it that kick to start it yeah it's only this one the other three don't do it <laughs> yeah i think you've basically just got a dodgy bulb Roger, thank you very, very much indeed. Uh, thanks a lot. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Dr. Dave, Tony has says a bit of a strange question tonight. Um, he would like to get an idea of the perception of size of the galaxy if the Earth were the size of a tennis ball. How far away would the nearest star be on that scale? And on the same scale, what would be the size of the galaxy? OK, so I've been doing some very rapid maths here. I've basically said that a tennis ball is about six and a half centimetres across diameter because that the earth's radius is about 6400 kilometers so that would mean that you'd have to divide everything in order to to convert from the real world into into a world the size where the earth is the size of a tennis ball you have to divide everything by about 200 million make everything about 200 million times smaller Mm -hmm. so that means that the nearest star which is about four light years away is going to be about 200,000 kilometres away, which is about half the way to the moon. So if the Earth's the size of a um, tennis ball nearest star, other mm-hmm. than the sun, of course, it's going to be about half the way to the moon away. Uh, now, the galaxy is about 100,000 light-years away across, so that's getting quite big. So if you then try and convert that into kilometres and then convert it into... Uh, and then divide it by 100 million, so the Earth's the size of a tennis ball you end up with about 5 billion kilometres. So if, if the Earth's the size of a tennis ball, the galaxy's still 5 billion kilometres across, which is a bit larger than the, somewhere around the orbit of Neptune or Pluto. So it's a bit like a mouse to a Labrador then? And then some. And then some. <laughs> Phew. All right. <laughs> OK. So, yeah, the galaxy is a very, very big place. Keith says, um, I was wondering, what is the oldest recorded vegetable? He thinks it could be the onion. Yeah, I've been having a little look into that. There are various very old vegetables. The onion, I think, has been found... um, The problem is it's it's hard to tell when people started growing them because vegetables have been around for for millions of years because they're just... uh, I mean, things like fruits um, are designed for animals to eat, then um, animals swallow the seeds, and then the animals distribute the seeds in the way that animals do in their dung. And then the seeds have got something nice and nourishing for them to start growing on with lots and lots of um, nice fertiliser already there. Other vegetables are just parts of plants. I mean, a lot of vegetable things like spinach are just leaves of plants. Plants with leaves have been around for millions and millions of years. And things like um, potatoes or onions are just ways of plants storing energy for the winter. Mm. So they'll store lots of energy in... Um, a potato is a root. It's a tuber. It's a tuber, yeah. So it stores lots of energy in there so the next year they can grow up much quicker and get a head start on all of the plants which are just growing from straight seeds. 
quite hard to know when people actually started growing them. I think there's been some evidence of onions growing, sort of being grown sort of 5000 BC in around the Middle East, and apparently cucumbers all the way back to 8000 BC in India. Mm. So a long way back, basically as soon as um, people started to work out that farming was a good idea, so once they'd made the connection that if you plant seeds, then new plants will grow, which you might want to encourage. I would have thought that vegetables of some type started being used. Now, Kerwin says, Hello, Dr Dave. Hello, Sue. If you're exposed to a cold virus and didn't know it and then had a flu jab, what would happen? I think he's saying that because he just feels absolutely awful. Oh, dear Kerwin. What do you reckon, Dr Dave? Chris would be the expert on this, so take anything I say with a pinch of salt as it's not really my field. A flu virus is attempting, a flu jab is attempting to give you immunity to a certain flu virus. So they, they kind of, I think they grow, they grow it in a, eggs and then they extract bits of virus from the egg, kill it, and then inject, and then kill the virus, then inject it in you. Right, okay. So it's actually quite an expensive, it's a difficult thing to do, which is why some, some years they don't produce a vaccine for the right virus, because they only really have enough money to be able to make a vaccine against one virus, and you, they don't necessarily know which virus is going to be the problem this year, because yeah. they, they see it developing somewhere in Asia. And then they ha- they might see two or three different strains. They don't know which one's going to be the problem here. So I don't think the actual that you're not going to be making antibodies for the cold virus. So it's not actually going to be causing a problem. Again, I'm not entirely sure, but I think if you're, I think when they add a, a vaccine, they quite often add something to try and make your immune system sort of jump up and take a te- pay attention. Yeah. So what could be happening is the the immune system was already quite excited because you've got um, a cold and it got injected with this stuff to make it a bit more excited. So so you might be feeling so bad because your immune system is just going really hyper because it was kind of excited to start with fighting the cold. And then you got the flu jab as well. So I would have thought it would mean that you get over the cold a lot quicker because your immune system is going to go out and completely wipe everything out. Now, Dr. Dave, we have a live caller on the line to ask you his science question. Let's say good evening to Ted. Hello, Ted. Good evening. What's your question for Dr. Dave? Uh, Dr. Dave, um, on occasions, I um, don't know what time of year it is, but you can see the, the, the moon and the sun at the same time. Yeah. Um, what time of the year would that be? Because we've noticed it before, and I can't remember when it was, but it uh, seems to be a bit odd. Okay, it will happen, you can actually see the moon and the sun in the sky at the same time, any time of year really. Um, It's not just, although you will, um, basically what you need for this to happen is it tends to happen either um, early morning or late in the night, just around sunrise and sunset, because although the moon can be in the sky um, near midday, it tends to be, the sky tends to be so bright you can't see it and it le- will be less visible anyway. Okay, basically the moon orbits the Earth. Um, it goes around the Earth once every 28 days. If the moon is between us, is on the sun side of the Earth, then you should be able to see it during the daytime. And basically the only time you're going to see it, if, if, the, sun, if the moon is very close to the sun, then the lit up part of the moon is going to be pointing towards the sun, so not towards us. So that's what's called a new moon. And so you're not going to be able to see... So you're not going to be able to see it because you can see the dark part of the um, moon and the, the sun is so bright that the sky around it is going to be very bright, so it's going to be pretty much invisible anyway. At times when you tend to see it is around half moon. 
it says the sun the, uh, and the earth and the moon are sort of a, a 90 degree triangle um, with the 90 degrees at the earth. If the sun is just rising, then the moon's going to be pretty much above you. And so sunrise and sunset, the sky's not that bright yet. And the moon could be nicer and high, so there's no reason why you shouldn't see it. Basically, the, the moon, yeah, if the moon it's is... It's complicated for me, because I've always been taught, like, the sun in the morning and uh, the moon at night, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, the, the and, moon... Uh, and to see both of them is... Yeah, uh, it's, it's not what you'd expect. Yeah, the moon, no. the moon can be up in the daytime. In fact, half of the month it will be up in the daytime. It, and, oh, and, and it depends moon. on the time of the year that you actually remembered seeing it, yeah? It, it depends on the time of the lunar month. The full moon, the moon is exactly opposite the sun. Okay. So at sunrise, the moon should be just setting. Definitely half of the day, the moon is in the sky. And the time of the day, which that is, depends on where the moon is in its orbit. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, admit, admit, so, yeah, you can see the moon during the day. Lovely, Ted. Thank you very, Thank much, you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Um, question here that's come from Rob, who says, uh, Dr. Dave, can I jump higher when the moon is overhead? Um, the simple answer is yes, but very, very, very slightly, because the moon has gravity, the earth has gravity, so the reason why we, everything has gravity, anything with mass will attract you, and um, the heavier it is and the closer it is, the more it's going to attract you, so the nearest big heavy thing is the earth. Mm. But the moon does have an effect, it sort of has probably about, when the difference between the moon's above you and when it's at right angles to you is probably about one part in a thousand. So you can pro- if you can jump a metre normally, you could probably maybe jump possibly about another millimetre extra if the moon was directly above you because the moon is basically attracting you. So it's counteracting some of the Earth's gravity. Peculiarly, this will actually work as well as if the moon is above you, but also work if the moon's the opposite side of the Earth because if the moon is the opposite side of the Earth, although it's not pulling you very hard, it's actually pulling the Earth because the Earth, on average, is closer to the Moon than you are. Mm-hmm. The Moon is going to pull the Earth away from you very slightly. So although the Earth is pulling you um, quite strongly, it's also being pulled away from you. So if you jump, you'll still get, get um, the, the Earth will get pulled away from you slightly by the time you fall down. So you will also be able to jump slightly higher than if the Moon was at right angles to you. And, of course, if the moon and the sun are lined up, then you get an extra little kick as well. Oh, that's what it is, then. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Dave. Now, um, John has sent the text in. Say, Dr. Dave, is there any evidence of an Armageddon in the next uh, 10,000 years, or could it happen without warning? Depends what... Yeah, it's very, yes. Depends what you mean by Armageddon, really. Um, I mean, it's something which would kill most of the people on the earth. There's all sorts of things which could do it. I mean, probably the most likely one actually is some kind of global nuclear war over the next thousand years is probably not as unlikely as we'd like to think it was. You can have huge super volcanoes, which whilst they probably wouldn't kill all the humans in the world because they've gone off in the past every few hundred thousand years and they haven't just killed off all the large animals. They've killed off a lot of them. If you had a very, very large asteroid collide with the Earth, that would kill off a very large portion of the population and would probably be known as something like Armageddon. But the odds of, of them are probably not incredibly high, but small disasters, definitely. Really, really big global ones. They probably seem to only happen in the, every several millions of years, if not tens of millions of years. 
Okay, Paul has just uh, called in to make a point about the flu vaccinations. Uh, vaccinations. Um, he says he's not a pathologist, but he does tend to have uh, he does have a limited knowledge about it. When the flu vaccination is administered, it is not infecting the recipient. It is a hollow shell that shows the immune system the virus to help to build up immunity. As he says, he does not infect you with the said virus. So now we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they sort of make it uninfectious before they put it in. So. Okay, here's one, a bit of kitchen science, I think. Um, Phil in Newmarket says, why does garlic flash in the microwave like a miniature lightning storm? Ooh, I've tried that. Mm, that was a very lightning experiment we did um, last weekend in the kitchen science. We did an experiment in kitchen science, which is basically if you get a grape and you cut it almost all the way through, so you've just got a little bit of skin left over, and then you open those two halves out and pull them apart a little bit and dry it out put that in a microwave you get sparks in between the two halves the reason is that microwaves heat up food using microwaves um these are kind of same thing as light and radio waves they're an electric sort of vibrating electric field electric Mm -hmm. and magnetic field and so an electric field when it hits something which will conduct electricity will cause electrons to flow so you get basically get an electric current flying backwards and forwards you get a big electric current going between these two grapes you get an awful lot of electric current through that little bit of skin where you almost cut them in, into. Um, that heats up, dries out, and so all of a sudden it, it doesn't conduct electricity anymore. And so this big uh, voltage which you've built up wants to jump jump the gap so it sparks over the gap. I'd have thought garlic does something similar. Um, definitely if you have more than one gl- um, clove of garlic in the microwave, you have two kind of damp things which conduct electricity joined together by a very, very small gap. You probably get sparking over that small gap. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 